Here we are at Twig's SE Reflections Question and Answer Roundup. Uh, I get lots of questions. Lots of them are the same. That's because so many of us are curious. I'm curious too. And I don't have all the answers, I'm happy to say that. But I'm involved. I like that. I'm going to take on some questions today, but I'm always looking for more. Feel free to send me yours, liberationispossible.org backslash SE Reflection. I'll do what I can with it. For now, I'm going to step up here on my little pillar of wisdom and take the position. See if I can say something intelligent. Now, I can't give anybody credit for this one because this is, this is such a universal question. I get this one in so many different languages all the time. Why does it take so long to become proficient at SE? And I think, oh my goodness, that's a great question. Because if what we're talking about is this biological impulse that the nervous system has a stereotypical pattern that it uses to execute the autonomic stress response given a dangerous, challenging, stressful encounter. Our organisms will kind of work to defend themselves should we survive that encounter. They have prepared processes for deactivating and completing the stress response and then moving on back into life more robust for having gone through and successfully negotiated the challenge. I mean, that's like, that's the story in a nutshell, right? That's the whole animal story and the, the whole human story given appropriate context and conditions. Like we're just as ready to complete the stress response as any other critter. Just take a look at your office. So why not? I'm like, why, why does it take so long to become so proficient at SE that we need to be just so darn good at helping people who have this kind of intelligent help already trying to help like why does it take so much well one answer that you know like i just off the top but it's it's definitely what i think like our societies are really turned around on what they're supposed to pay attention to you know not to be critical i'm just saying like the the amount of stress that is in our society and societies around the world calls people's attention toward more and more things that reflect the stress response and less and less things of the true of like the of the experiences and the phenomena that would be more helpful to their organisms by which to help them settle so when people come into our offices they're they're not coming into our offices they're coming into they're not coming into like the somatic experiencing practitioner's office who has been studying for the last three years, all of these insights about how through the cultivation of attention and permissive awareness, over time, a person's capacity can be enhanced to be able to feel their involuntary experiences. And by contacting those through the felt sense in a context and condition of sufficient safety, their organism will kind of mobilize a a pendular action of like some kind of like spontaneous movement of energy that was previously locked up by inhibition or 
kind of chronic disinhibition and exhaustion from just using it all and then collapsing, using it all and collapsing, or constantly chronically holding it back, or constantly, constantly moving forward with said energy and never letting it down, and now being so unprepared to feel the nuance of change in a system that has become kind of pinched into a certain kind of way of holding itself for a sense of this is what I can get for safety. You put all that together, that walks into your office. They're not walking into your office. They're not walking into a somatic experiencing practitioner's office. They're not walking into a place where they, they are free to let their organism unwind and do all of that weird organic intelligence kind of stuff. Or even the, like, just feel your feet on the floor, weird, like, I am now settling because I'm spending my time taking my attention to this place, to this time, to my body in this now. No, 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 no. They're walking into another office, another office in another building, another office in another building in another city, in another place where the rest of the time people's attention is by and large toward dissociation, toward not paying attention to their felt sense, toward ignoring the rumbles or the tensions in their belly, toward spending less and less time with one another, toward having less and less time for deactivation and compensation for so much hyperactivity. What office they're walking into, my friends, my friend, you who ask, how long, why should it take so long to become good at SE? Well, if they were walking into your office and they were prepared to be in your office, it would be a lot easier like it is at the trainings because your clients would be kind of more in the participation. It takes so long because our society is so distant from our felt sense experience that people are both heavily traumatized by that and do not have the lens by which to look at themselves easily and safely. And that is what you are offering and you are providing. And yes, for people who are that much more distressed than other people, it will take that much more time for you to get that much more competent on how to provide that signal of safety for them and make it okay for some of their physiology and biology to get the neuroception that says, hey, everything's going to be, you know, at least at this moment, okay to let this happen. That's a great lesson to be able to learn and it's gonna take some time, but I bet you can do it. I've got a question from Alice. Alice says, I just lost a client that I really didn't feel the commitment for, but I'm off. Should I have done something different? Well, I don't know why, <laughs> you know, Alice, I wasn't there. And I don't know, should you have done something different? But I'm glad you mentioned this non-committal client part because one of the problems of our work, one of the challenges, is that when a client leaves us, we don't get like the feedback of why they left. Like maybe they don't like my perfume. Maybe they don't like the decor in my walls. Maybe they don't like my hours. Maybe they don't like my telephone number. I don't know why they leave. Maybe I say the wrong thing. That's the problem. Maybe I did say the wrong thing, and maybe I didn't do the right thing, and maybe it was my perfume. So by not being able to get the feedback when a client leaves on why they're leaving, it kind of sets us up for both 
like kind of like badgering ourselves as if we could have, should have, you know, would have done something different had we been so much better than we are or some kind of thing like that. Or it sets us up for like thinking that we are the only thing happening. We are the only element in the office. Person comes in and they say, okay, now I'm ready to pay for therapy and I'm ready to come into your office and I want you to fix me. And then this person leaves and you're like, well, you know, did they, you know, they were non-committal. They weren't really into it before they came. Did they, did they get a job? You know, were they the person in the newspaper yesterday that, you know, isn't going to come back tomorrow? Like we have no idea when they really are gone, they're gone. And it's a one-way street. It's a total invitation. It's an open door policy. It's like, we say we're here to help people come and we don't have, and we shouldn't have the right to track them in order to find out what they think about what we said. That's an us issue. And that's, you know, if it's truly an issue, it's something to, you know, get some real guidance on, some real counseling on, you know, like uh, supervision. That all said, as I am often to be found saying, that all said, sure, you know, maybe, maybe really, maybe, maybe this non-committal client left because what they heard from you, what they felt from you, what they got from you, um, didn't allow them to commit to the process with you. And, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a bummer. And, and I'm sorry, because, you know, like this is probably not only your work, but your business. And so it matters if your clients are leaving you and, you know, you, you don't, you don't need a client that you, that you're not able to turn from non-committal to committal before they're ready to leave without ever saying or or contacting you and giving you any indication of what happened so that you don't even know if like the catastrophic ideas of what might have happened to them aren't true like this person and you couldn't develop enough rapport for them to call and say hey you know i don't think this is really the right time for me or this isn't really the what i was expecting or anything like that like they're just gone and you don't know like you weren't you you didn't stand a chance you, you didn't stand a chance. Like, you don't have to worry about it. They're gone. There, there's, a, there's a million other people that you get to try to help in your life. You get to go do that. You get to open your door to the next person who, who accepts your offer of an open door policy where people are free to come and you're going to do your best to help. And your next opportunity to turn that person who, who might not be like so there, you know, like, Part of what's going to help them be that much more there is your confidence and conveyance that like you are providing something for people, not that people are leaving you because you can't provide that. No, you're providing that. Just keep going in that direction. The people who are non-committal and you can't get them to commit, you guys aren't a good match anyway. You want to help people, not just get frustrated with people and certainly not to just help people stay inside of your business when they don't really need to be there. So somebody who leaves, it's a bummer we don't get the feedback, but more power to them that they can and more power to you that the next right client, hopefully going to knock on your door next week. There's a question from Danielle who is like referring to a workshop that I gave years back. And I talked in that class about how different kind of phases is a good language. I like that language from Steve Hoskinson, good, different phases of the autonomic stress response. They have 
specific activity, things that they promote, behaviors that they are associated with that are correlated to them or, or the repertoire of what you can do is pretty well kind of limited and determined by what subsystem of your autonomic nervous system is working. So people behave differently, as we know, in fight flight, they behave differently between each other and between freeze and between social engagement or kind of engagement with the world environment and such. So the, the question from Danielle is like, if there are any resources I can point to about this notion I provided in that class, in that workshop where I said that, which I just shared here, and then that when you approach people in the clinical endeavor, when you're like trying to meet with people in sessions, a lot of times you, you're better off to try to meet them more or less in a very similar kind of posture, tone, essentially a similar expression of the phase that they're in so as to provide a kind of a signal or a neuroception of safety that says something like, or the way I think of it is something like, hey, your behavior here makes sense. You don't have to resist that. And since the autonomic stress response is kind of a, kind of a process where like one part happens, goes to the next part, that part gets fulfilled, seems to go to the next part. It seems to be that as you know, you, you join with people at these different places in the stress response, the next part of it starts to happen. So one of the ways to do this is with children who are kind of playing off by themselves. We know this one as lots of folks know this one, like children playing off by themselves in the corner. And rather than going and trying to stimulate the child to come over and play with the rest of the group, oh, Tony, come on, come on, come over and come on, stop playing by yourself over here. Come join the group, which is asking them to go kind of up into the stress, the sympathetic system when really Tony is over there playing in the vent, the dorsal vagal system, playing in the like kind of withdrawal from the environment kind of zone. If instead somebody comes over and kind of does some parallel play, gets close enough that Tony can see that somebody's in relationship to him, but not so close that it's, you know, kind of intruding, then that kind of mirroring, that kind of signal of like, here's, here's a kind of a reflection of your behavior. Your behavior is safe enough here. That seems safe for you to do here. I'm not going to press you to do something else, but still being available for when any of Tony's behavior starts to change to be able to, to, to kind of go with that change so that if more engagement comes forward, that's not ignored, but instead kind of met more or less probably at the level in this example of like the level of interest that Tony expresses because you're doing parallel play and it's kind of like you're just mimicking more or less, not like a parrot, but you're, you're kind of giving back the tone of the interest that you're receiving. And that tends to help people feel safer. So people in freeze shut down kind of stonewally kind of places when they, when they keep getting like pushed upon, there's a, there's a, there's more withdrawal most of the time you don't get more fight. You get more withdrawal most of the time, or you get fight, but what you don't get, whatever you don't get, whatever you get, you, what you don't get is people settling into where they are so that it's safe enough for them to proceed to somewhere else. And I hope that doesn't sound cryptic, but that's definitely what I mean. The, so, you know, people in a fight response who've got some like aggression in their voice, 
they they don't calm down because somebody else says, "Oh, calm down." You know, let's just be let's be peaceful here. They they calm down when they have more people on their side and more support and more strength in numbers or an agency or in some kind of thing that says that they're safer because they're in a fight. And the whole idea about a fight response is that you need to subdue something else that is more dangerous than you. And so you're looking for like more power in order to do that. So if, if you know, your care provider is kind of like got a little bit of the edge with that, when you're in the fight response, it feels a little bit safer. It's easier to contact somebody in that direction rather than trying to be in a completely different phase. A caveat is with flight. It doesn't it doesn't make anybody feel safer when they're having a, a little bit of a, a, a state of anxiety and you you start to get f- afraid with them. You know, you 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 don't want to be afraid with them. So my tendency is to get pretty solid with that one. I, I get more solid and I'm essentially trying to say, I'm not afraid. You can be as afraid as you need to here. And that's going to be okay because the situation, the environment that we're both in right now is actually not dangerous, but it is safe enough for you to be able to feel that danger, that sense of anxiety for the next moment while we continue to see in our case with somatic experiencing, as we've had everything lined up correctly before this, we see what happens next. Asking somebody to simply sit in their anxiety attack and feel what they're feeling without setting things up appropriately beforehand is just a way to have somebody sit in their anxiety attack. Not a good idea. Are there other resources, Danielle? Well, you know, this is something that I look at a lot in my Practicing Our Lines class, which is all about like how practitioners can kind of stretch their imagination and their their instrument of their bodies and voices and and our thinking apparatus of our presentation so as to kind of join with and make contact with more and more people who are less and less like us more unlike us right like it's easy if i'm on the sympathetic side for me to meet up with somebody who's on the sympathetic side but it could be a little challenging if i'm on the sympathetic side to to kind of figure out how to contain myself in a way so as to meet with somebody on that sh- slower dorsal vagal side of things and making that transition that's something that and and talking about how those different interactions go that's something i look at in practicing our lines stephen hoskinson was the first person to turn me on to this so you might you might look at his material he might have some stuff nothing like he he will he will do really nice presentations that would go well with what I'm saying here. Where else? The polyvagal theory essentially says all of this in some fundamental kind of way. But at the same time, this is kind of like clinical hoo-ha. So maybe maybe I don't know of any like real outside resources, but I do know it matters. Yep. Of course, with social engagement, if you're trying to signal social engagement and somebody's way off on the spectrum of that less and less attentiveness with you it might be terribly threatening to ask for a lot of social engagement from them and as a general rule any increased sign of increased social engagement is like something we would both want to like kind of mm, you know be with kind of relate to enhance feed lean on say yes yummy good that's good of course you wouldn't want to get cheerleader with it because it'd probably put most people out and that's a huge sign that things are going in the right direction, any increased pro-social behavior. 
Oh, that's the theme song to close off this SE Reflections. Yeah, this Twigs SE Reflections question and answer roundup. Make sure you send your own questions in. I want to take a chance at those. You know what I'm doing here, though? I'm, I'm not just closing the roundup. I'm closing this week of SE Reflections. Yeah, going to have a weekend. How about you? You going to have a weekend? Ah, who knows? Maybe you're listening to this on a Tuesday. Eventually you're going to have a weekend, though. What would you do? Do the laundry? Yeah, it needs to be done. Yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to find a hillside that just keeps going and going and going. Going to breathe.